The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. What are you about tonight? Love, interestingly (laughs) enough. Of course it is. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful for the love you demonstrated in sending your son. We're thankful for the love he demonstrated in showing us that uh, we can serve. We can get down and wash one another's feet. We're thankful for these demonstrations, and we're thankful for the gift of the Spirit, who then can give us, produce within us this love. It is not something that we generate of ourselves. It's not something we learn. It's something that you give us then to to exercise, and we're thankful for this then. Amen. So, John chapter 13, John chapter 13. I was talking to some talking to some people a little over a week ago and I, I, I made the statement I'm just going to this is a test to see if I was accurate or not but if if uh, somebody if somebody were to ask you that doesn't go to church here is there something is does your, does your pastor have a hobby horse or does your pastor have something that he really likes to talk about I, I, can't, I narrowed it to two things when I was explaining, when I was talking about this. Nope, nobody? That you thought two people that would say. Well, I'm just, yeah, I'm thinking this love is. Love one another. Love one another. There it is. A plus. <laughs> and your position in Christ. And your position in Christ. Wow, we got two A pluses. The rest of you? Well, no. <laughs> Participation point. Yeah. I, I, and the two really go hand in hand. So, you know, um, when we come to understand how all this works together. Uh, I could even win the trivia question. What are your three most used words? No, we don't want to go there. So, what are they? In other words. In other words, yes. I was thinking about that. When you read a passage of scripture, See, now I can't remember what it is you say. I just drew a blank. I was just thinking about what I've got, kind of gotten used to when you read through a past scripture, you've got like a little ending thing you say at the end of every verse when you get done reading with that. Anyway, yeah, you, you pick up on stuff. We all have these little things that we do that we say. That's not a criticism, Josh. I would never post another one. What? I don't know if we ever say that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I say it quite a bit. Now you're going to start noticing. Yeah, now you're going to hear it. So, in other words... <laughs> Okay, that's a freebie. Yeah. So, verse, uh, let's put in it uh, verse 31. We're not going to really go over these verses here, so but I'm going to read through these verses just to kind of put this in perspective. So, therefore, uh, when he, that is Judas, went out, Jesus says, Now the Son of Man is glorified, uh, and God is glorified by him. And if God has been glorified by him, then God will glorify, uh, glorify him by himself. And immediately he will glorify him. Little children, yet a little while and I am with you, and you will seek me. And just as I have said to the Jews, where I am going, you are not able to come. Uh, And I say this to you, and I say this to you now or at the present time. Verse 34. Okay, we're going to stop there. We are going to come back and deal with that when we're done with this present topic. What Jesus just said in those verses. And the reason we're going to do this in between is, well, that's the way I put my outline together. 
when I did this, however long, long back it was. And I was going to take it out of order. And I thought, no, I'm just going to stick with this for the time being. Because Jesus, these, these statements, these statements about what Jesus says beginning in verse 31, these statements he answers or explains in the first part of chapter 14. Okay. So he's going to explain some of that when we get into chapter 14. So we're going to come back and deal with it then. In fact, when, you're, when you read this, what we're going to look at tonight is the new commandment. And we're not going to cover it tonight. We're going to cover some of it tonight. I, I was walking back through my notes this afternoon and I was thinking, there's just we're going to stop here. I, I, my goal is to get through this section. And if you know me, I'll be lucky if we can do that. But if you read this text, I almost feel that the disciples don't even hear the new commandment. Well, at least Peter doesn't. Because as soon as he gets done, Peter's like, wait, wait a minute. Where are you going that we can't come with you? You know, and it's like, did you just hear what I said in between? It's like, that's all that Peter hears. It's really shocking. Yeah, it is. So the new commandment thing kind of just, they kind of miss that. But the new commandment is very important for us. And we'll, I, again, I this is, I, I, for all of you, this is going to be something that I'm sure that you've gone over here either with us or you've gone over in other Bible studies at other times, other places. It's just such a, uh, I, I hope, a key doctrine. Although having said that, having said that, I don't do this very often, but today I, told, I came home and told Peggy this when I came home for lunch that I was I turned on YouTube. I have a bad habit of turning YouTube on and listening to music playing in the background while I'm studying and such. And uh, I was like, I want to see what's, how somebody else teaches the upper room. And I think, I think three. I think there's just three different churches I went to, three different churches. I just pulled up upper room. It's like, yeah, okay, let's try this guy. Let's try this guy. Let's listen. What? Was it people you already knew? I didn't know any of these people. I didn't know any of these people that, put, that I pulled up online. But I just wanted to hear how they approached this. And the first two guys, I listened to them. I came home and I told Peg, I said, I'm just kind of like, I'm sorry, this sounds arrogant, but I just felt like I was banging my head against the wall. I was like, are they even reading their Bibles? You know, listening to what they had to say. The last guy kind of got the new commandment thing right. And then he kind of went like this, off this way. And I was like, okay, that's just, that's something you want, but that's not actually what this is about, clearly. Anyway, um, I do have some people that I do have heard. There's a, I've met a guy by the name of Steve from Pensacola in the church he attends. He had sent me a link there once. He says, oh yeah, listen to our pastor. He's going over the upper room. And I listened to their pastor for about, I don't know, about five months. I listened to him go through the upper room and he did a pretty good job. Moves a little faster pace than I do, uh, which is good for him. I wish I'd move faster, but anyway. Okay. All that to say there, it's long introduction. Pardon me. Verse 34, verse 35, a new commandment I give to you in order that you should love one another, even as I have loved you, in order that you should also love one another. And by this, all, some of your Bibles have men or all people, will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So let's just kind of walk through the basics of this passage, and then we're going to kind of, we'll start walking through um, some how to think through some of some what's going on. First thing he says is, I'm giving to you a new commandment. And the word for new, we've been over this many, many times uh, in the, the, the time that I've known you, is that he does not use the word naos, meaning, hey, this is just a fresh version of an old commandment, because I actually heard guys say that. Oh, this is the same commandment. This is the same commandment they always have had. 
Jesus is just renewing it. And it's not at all what he's doing, because he uses the adjective kainos, which means this is a new kind of commandment. And like I said, there was one guy, one pastor that I heard went over this, and he, he nailed it on the head. And we're going to point out why it's new in kind. We're going to see that in just a moment. Second thing, he says that you should love one another. One another. And that was the other point that that pastor made that I really also appreciated. Used to be love your neighbor, which is, we'll compare that in a little while. And your neighbor was a fellow Jew, which didn't necessarily mean a fellow believer. Whereas when he says one another, he says you disciples love each other here. So it was talking just to believers loving each other. And I was like, all right, yeah, okay, he's square on this. This is good to hear, at least as I understand and read this passage. Then he says, even as I have loved you. Now, this is the one point at which a lot of people are going to deviate, and it's actually, it was Josh that, that I don't know how many, it was before you guys went down to Portland to go back to, to, to pastor down there. Um, that he was teaching this on a Sunday afternoon, and I still remember he says Christ did not love us by going to the cross. And he went through several passages that we always say that, but none of them are connected with that. They're always connected with something else. And I remember I'm sitting at the end of the table, so they're going, inside, mind you. <laughs> inside, mind you. <laughs> but I went back. I, I went through... Uh, I. I pulled out my concordance, and I went through all these passages, looking at all these statements of love, and when I was done, I was like, you know what? This is right. That is exactly what this is about. See? And so, uh, so when he says, which I have loved, that's the other part of this, is that's an aorist verb in the Greek, as I have loved you. He said, I've already done this. And what was that? What had he done? He washed their feet. And that's very important because what that did, it set up a model for the disciples, which we've got done looking at. What is that model? Self-sacrificial service. Self-sacrificial service, yeah. Was it just that? that? That's the chief model he has recently given them. Okay. In, right, in the moment of this conversation. That's right. And it's, and it's a really good setup uh, because, again, I remember reading uh, in, the next, in the next chapter where, where uh, Jesus is going to say, no greater love has a man than this, than he, which means you jump in front of the speeding bullet, right? Speeding bullet? Yeah, jump in front of it. Yeah. They're going to shoot at my wife. Speeding train. Yeah, push her out of the way of a car. Well, I was thinking Superman, you know, a speeding bullet, you know, anyway. Faster than. Yeah, so I was jumping in front of it. Yeah, see? You are? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I am. But I, but this is what would run through my head, and I was always thinking, boy, you get one chance to do that, right? One chance in life. So what do you do with the rest of the time? But then you come to understand, and we'll hit that tonight. We've been through this before, so it's not like I'm keeping the cat in the bag. You guys, the cat's been out for a long time. You guys all know where this goes. It says, and then he goes on, in order that you should also love one another. Again. And by this, then, all. Now he switches from one another to, he adds, pontes. He says, all. All will experientially know. Now, there's two ways to understand what he means by experientially know. Number one is that the believers that are the recipients of love, they're the all that know. 
But he says that they will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I believe from some things that we're going to look at before we're done, we won't get to them tonight, that that all, I think, can be broader. That, in other words, even the world has some concept of what love is. And if you and I really are loving like we're supposed to, they look at that and they go, that's different. And I know what love looks like, but I'd like to know what that love is. And I, re and I as a result, I've come to the conclusion a long time ago, I think that that's the number one testimony. You have, to, you have a verbal testimony of who Jesus is, but you have a testimony of life towards the world, and the number one testimony of life you have towards the world is the love that you demonstrate to other believers. This is a really hard one for people to understand. I have this conversation a lot with people where they're like, yeah, but we're supposed to love other people. That's how people will know that we love Jesus. Okay, that's fine, but that's not actually what the Bible says. That's right. Um, but I think what people hear when you say to love other believers is that you should go ahead and hate everybody else rather than... no. Right. Yeah, if you don't love, you hate. That's right. the way, yeah. Sure. Rather than preferring. <coughs> Can I come here? Please, Please do. I think the, um, and I've been through this whole thing from front to end, trying to bring um, clarity. Mm -hmm. Not that it does, but um, I think it's just bringing some, uh, using the words that Scripture uses, and you'll be more accurate. Um when it come, what we normally call loving the world really falls under do good unto all men. And it's the kindness of God that brings men to repentance. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you're to do what makes others happy. Does it doesn't mean they will be happy. Like I have to tell somebody, hey, you're 545 pounds. You're losing you're gonna lose your job because you can't do your job. And now you're out for eight weeks because you're hurting yourself. Mm -hmm. His boss can't say that because he'll get sued. I can say this and help this guy. I'm not doing really what, I'm doing what's best for him though, right? I'm saying it, I'm saying it, I'll say it. Sure. <laughs> um, You've done it before, you can do it again. Yeah, yeah, you might not like me because I say this. Yeah. And, you not, and actually this particular person, and one time I'm saying this, Ben's telling him the same thing only in a much more harsh way. And and Stanton's giving them the guy the gospel, all independently, all independently. We're working with this guy, and I don't know uh, if there's anything going to come from it, but um, you know, but it's how God's working with each one of us towards this guy right. that we interact with on a daily basis. <coughs> you know, are we loving him? No. Would anything happen? I'm the, He happens to be in our life. He, we rub in. We bump into him. I'm not loving him. Loving is, I'm laying down what I want to do, you know, for your benefit. You know, that's, okay, T Tim could have gone and, and done something else tonight, but he decided to be here for our benefit. You know, now he probably wanted to be here too. <laughs> but sometimes, I remember people sometimes say, uh, well, I'm thinking of one particular person, I'm sure some of you have heard him say it. He's not with us anymore, he used to say, I have to love you. <laughs> you know, he'd say it like, I, I can remember, that's not exactly how he would say it, but it was something like that. I'm obligated to love you. <laughs> you know, I don't really want to love you, but I have to. You know, 
And now it's how it can. And he was making a joke. He yeah. was bringing levity to, hey, we're Christians, so we're supposed to love one another. Right. But, um, yeah, I think that we often call it, hey, we, lo- we want to make everybody feel loved. Mm-hmm. And people always say, Jesus loves you. That's The Bible never says that. The Bible says he loves the Christian. We're in the beloved, right? Yeah. And so that's how we are, you know, we're in the... We're in the one who's the object of the Father's love. Um, so yeah, we are loved. He says he loved us when we were yet sinners and yeah. died for us. He loved us while we were yet, while sinners. We were yet sinners. And then you have um, the idea that the Father loved the world, but it's always in the past. It never says he's loving the world today. It says he loved the world when he sent his unique one-of-a-kind son. Because and that we all, was the perfect act of love. He doesn't yes. have to do anything else it's to complete. prove his love to yes. unsaved people. Yes. Yeah. So, and that's the best. A lot of people don't get the distinction there. But every husband and wife knows, if you say to your wife, I loved you. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you ain't seen each other on the 14th. And me and Robin were actually talking about this, I don't know, last week about how people, like, don't realize like that for God so loved the world loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, you know, and it was love. And we hear we hear other religions say, Well, God loves everybody, we're all his children. You know. And which is and a fallacy too. Scripture right. says we're children by faith in Christ Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And then another I always liked how one particular professor we had would always, he had a little, he was talking the other night about how he would get <laughs> a subject and then go down a whole, boom, 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 all these verses that would relate to a topic and it would all sew up, right? right. And uh, he would get on the subject of God love the world and everything. And he'd always, what about Psalms 105.5 or Psalms 5, the verse out of the Psalms is God hates the workers of iniquity. <laughs> what are you going to do with that? And, and uh, but the point isn't to get in their face and say, God hates you. The point is, because in the same thing, God provided a solution for their hopelessness. And it's yeah. the kindness. you know. So I think that's what most people are trying to communicate is, yeah, it's a horrible world, but God has intervened. And, you know, and so I don't think the sentiment is wrong. It's just, it's, in, it's not factual. Yeah. Right. So let's instead communicate. God loved the world when communicate the gospel and express the kindness of God. You were hopeless. You were an enemy of God. You can't do anything to get to heaven. God did it all for you, and this is what you how you need to react to it yeah. by revelation. Believe, you know, and that, and it's, you know, if the spirit and that's our part, and the spirit does His work, it's the kindness of God. God, God took care of your problem. I don't know if that brings, that's how I would try to navigate trying to be accurate. And, right. And, I, I, and I'm not saying, if people that say it wrong, man, they ought to feel bad because they've been doing it wrong. All the, no, that's not the point either. I think people are well-intentioned. They're just. It's just that if we can come and we can realize the scripture maybe says some, says it differently than we thought of it. We're better off to actually correct our way of thinking to try to line up with the Word of God so that we represent what God says right, rather than putting words in God's mouth. Yep. Because that's the way we like it. 
So with that, all of this in kind of as a background, I want to go to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. And this is what, this is what I hear frequently. And this is what uh, one of these, uh, one of these people I was listening to said, but I've heard so many people say this. Um, Matthew 22, and we're going to go to verse 34, just to kind of pick up the context. 22-34. It says, Now the Pharisees, having heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they assembled together, and they questioned, uh, or one out of them, uh, specifically a lawyer, questioned him, Putting him to the test, and that's Pyrazo test, the temptation test. Expect he expects Jesus to fail. He's like, I've got a question for you. You're not going to be able to answer. You're going to get it. You're going to fail this test. It says, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he's he says to him, You shall love the Lord your God with the whole of your heart, the whole of your soul, and the whole of your thinking. This is the great and first commandment. And the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, the whole law hangs as well as the prophets. So he gives these two commandments. And this is what you hear frequently when you talk about love with believers, that they're told, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, love your neighbor as yourself. However, when you look at the new commandment, what, what makes these two different? What makes the new commandment different from this commandment? The new one we love is Christ, right? This one we love is we love ourselves. Yeah. The one is you're, you're, you're giving it all you've got. Which, in, amazingly, when you stop and think about it, as an Old Testament saint, remember? They didn't have regeneration. So they didn't have the indwelling spirit. They didn't have the indwelling son. They didn't have the indwelling father. They didn't have what... You have in your salvation. That was the best they could do was love them as they love themselves. Yeah, that's the best they could do. And the best they could do is just love God with all their strength. Just throw themselves into it. And there's all kinds of people that love like this. And it's not like it's bad love. It's just saying, well, let's put it this way. It's the difference between, and I don't even know who current world-class soccer players are. But it's the difference between a world-class, this is a bad analogy, but world, between a world-class soccer player and four-year-old soccer soccer players. And they've got that mob of kids on the field that are just like, <laughs> you've watched little four-year-olds play soccer like that, you know? And they're, it's just, it's a different, it's so different, you know? And uh, So as many people there are in a room, as, as many standards there are. Yeah. Whereas yeah. when it's Christ, it's one standard. I can't remember. Is this, this, they still haven't, he still hasn't told them on that day. No, no, okay, he hasn't so, given, he's just, so, a, but he, they're not going to understand that, oh, this is going to be kind of love that God provides. This is not a self-generated love. This is a God-produced love. Right. And as I said, kind of in introducing this, if you read Peter's comment in the immediately, in the next, very next verse, verse 36 of John 13, <laughs> I don't think Peter even heard the new commandment. All he heard was, I'm going, you can't follow. And he's like, and Jesus tells the new commandment. Peter's sitting there, he's going, what? I can't follow. Where are you going? You know, he doesn't even listen. Does that ever happen to you? Mm -hmm. You know? With somebody else, trying to talk to somebody else, and all he heard was this. And 
<laughs> my biggest problem yes my biggest problem i get stuck on one thing that she says at the beginning miss the whole rest of the statement so this this is what this is what he's getting at but it's it is an important thing and i want to look at there's two passages where paul's going to quote this and you're going to go was well, he applying it to us no there's a point in in quoting it and we're going to go to romans 13 first of all Romans 13. Romans chapter 13. And does anybody know the general subject matter of Romans 13? Submission to the government. And one of and in submitting to the government, the favorite thing, the thing we all love to do. Pay our taxes. <laughs> Caesar, what is Caesar? So, he says in verse 7, I'm, I'm going to skip over the first part where he's basically saying uh, obey government. And he says in verse 7, he says, Give to all what is owed. Tax to whom tax. Uh, um, Mayan linear translates uh, revenue. It used to be called tribute. Uh the difference between a tax and a tribute is a tribute was something that was collected in an area where an area paid a tribute to a to another power that kind of was over them. So Judea was not was it was its own state, but it was under the thumb of Rome, and so they had to take collect a tribute. Well, <laughs> the government Judea is not going to pay the tribute out of their own coffers. Your pocketbook is going to feed their coffers to pay that to Rome. So that's what he's talking about here. Everybody had to do that. So you paid a tax, but you also paid a tribute, but also fear. Fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. And I I, I don't want to get sidetracked too much, but the significance of all of those things, that fear and honor, it's a good thing. Is It would be a good lesson for us as believers to learn, because are there people that are in government in our state and in, the, in our nation that sometimes we're like, well, I really don't like that person, that man, woman, whoever they they are. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was growing up, my grandfather <laughs> stopped taking a particular newspaper because when a certain person came into power, that newspaper just every week was just trying to rip this president to shred. And my grandfather said, uh, they're not honoring the government. Well, that was a public newspaper, not a Christian. But anyway. I still remember him doing that. He was so upset by, by the fact, the direction they went when that happened. But he says, this is what you ought to do. So as a believer, it's not just about paying your taxes. It's also about the kind of respect that you show for those people that are over you in whatever capacity. So he says in verse 8, so owe no one anything. And whether, I don't know, who, I can't even think of his name. Who's the because I don't even know if he uses this. Who's the budget Christian budget guy? It's on the Rick, Dave Ramsey. I don't know if Dave Ramsey <clears throat> cites his verse or not, but I've heard lots of Christian financial counselors over the years cite this verse, and they take it out of context. Because this verse is not about taking out a loan to buy a house or something like that. This is talking about the fact that you owe them something in terms of taxes or tribute or fear or honor. That's what this is about. And he says, so owe no one anything except to love one another. Now, what is that? Love one another. What is that? What would be the heading? New commandment. That's the new commandment. Okay. For the one loving, 
Now, some of your Bible is going to say, for the one loving the other person, but that's not what he's talking about here. This is in verse 8, Romans 13, 8. So the first part says, owe no one anything except to love one another. That one another is those that are alike within a group, believers. But then the second part, some of your modern translations have gone with, for the one loving the other person, the other one. But the thing is, is that other is the word heteros, which that would imply the one loving the unbeliever. That's what that would imply. If that's what Paul means. But the word heteros, as an adjective, I think is applied to the word law. The thing is, it's, it's, it's match. It is, it is a, it is a, it is a translation. Bible translators. Well, the thing is, is even in Greek, though, it is a translation decision. Because there is a definite article in front of the adjective, and then there's a noun, and all of them are in the accusative case. So he can be saying the one loving the other person fulfills law. It could be that. But the more natural way to handle it is to say the one loving. Loving what? Well, one another. He just got done telling them this one has fulfilled the other law, the different law. In other words, Christ gave us a command. If you put your attention into loving other believers, you're going to fulfill also a different law. What law was that in the context? The law of the land. I'm sorry. I'm just going to let you answer that. I was going to get it wrong, so I'm glad you jumped right in there. (laughs) You're fulfilling the the law that demanded you pay taxes and tribute and so on. So you're fulfilling a different law, not the new command law, a different law. And then that brings us then to verse 9, where he's going to illustrate that. And he's going to quote from the old... Test. I think it's helpful here to explain that the way you're loving by paying your taxes is you're not bringing any kind of condemnation down on people that you're associated with as believers. Right. And we're going to come back to that down here, down below in the context, as Paul kind of brings us all together. Okay, hold on. So before you move on, I want to make sure I'm understanding accurately what you're trying to say. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. So for the one that does this, mm-hmm. he's fulfilling a different kind of law. Right. And you're saying that that law, he's not referring to the new commandment. No, that's why he uses heteros. He's fulfilling the Roman law. And we're going to see why in just a moment. Okay. Okay, okay so for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's not right. And uh, Yeah, and it shouldn't be another. That it should just that for the one who loves has fulfilled uh, the other law. So this actually in the well, you can see right here, yeah, yeah. tan heteron naman, right there, yeah, the other. Oh, yeah, but see, Peg's Bible program has another. They have it keyed to the wrong pronoun in the Greek. Yeah, so if you were dependent on that, what to me that's nonsense. It is to call them the same and then say they're different. Love one another. The one loving, the other law has filled. And so it's like, what? Right. Uh, to me, it's nonsensical. Well, and I'm, I'm, I'm not defending the people that take this point of view, 
But this is this is something to think about. Modern Greek teachers, not all of them do this, but I'm surprised how many do. They say there's not a whole big difference between alelos and heteros, one Except another. Except they're different words I know. have different meanings. Yes. And you read their context and it brings so much more to the context when you understand it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's obvious. And you can go through <laughs> passages where clearly heteros is talking about something distinct. See? So I just, anyway, that's why, that's why you open your word study book, you read it, these are the definitions they give you, and then you do the legwork of going through every passage in the New Testament where those words occur to see what it does. Our Greek professor, I don't know if Josh remembers this, but our Greek professor said he was going to a church where the pastor couldn't preach himself. Well, that was my dad's saying, couldn't preach himself out of a hole. But they were going to church where that was happening. And so every week he would sit there and he would go to church. And he liked the Sunday school teacher, but the, anyway. And he would sit, and every week he was working through Kai, which is and in the Greek. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of them. And he would work through a section of those during church service. He'd sit there with his Bible going and examined all the Kais. All oh, so the, he was studying and not listening? He was, yes. Because, yeah, after, after a few months of sitting there and listening to the pastor go on about stuff, he was like, I just can't. If I, I need to go for this and for these people, but it is so hard to listen to this man preach air that he had to find something else to do with his time. So the second part of that sentence should say, that verse should say For the what? one loving has fulfilled the other or the different, maybe, the, uh, maybe say the different, E-R-E-N-T. Oh, <coughs> law. Okay. The different law. Okay. Thank you. So, now let's go to the pick up in verse 9. It says, For that you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and if there is any other different commandment, all the commandments aren't the same, are they? Not, not having another god, or not making an idol, or honoring your parents. Those, they're commands. We all know they're part of the law, but they're not the same as a command to don't commit adultery, or don't murder, or don't steal. I mean, those are different kinds of commands. When you stop thinking about it, you look at the Ten Commandments. They, there is some variety. They're not all just kind of saying roughly the same thing in general. But he says, if there is any different than command. They are all summed up or headed up in this word in this word. In other words, he says, there is one thing that you could head up all of these other commandments under, and that is verse 10, love your neighbor as yourself. What is, yeah, that's, that's verse nine. Verse, oh, I said verse 10, didn't yeah. I? I'm sorry. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does he mean by that? Love your neighbor as yourself. What do you mean by that? Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, he's talking about under the law. Well, let's just read verse 10. It tells you, love does not work evil to its neighbor. Wrong. Pig's Bible says wrong. It's kakos. It doesn't do something that's out of character. If you've got a person that's your neighbor, a fellow Jew with you, Peg and I have neighbors next door. I don't go over and throw rocks at their cars. I don't throw rotten fruit at their house. I don't stand out in their backyard and call them names. 
And when Halloween came around and their kids didn't come by our door, I went over the next afternoon with a couple of treats for their two little kids because I wanted them to have them. And they were like, oh, oh thank you, thank you. you know. And uh, so, you know, the thing is, is even though I don't know them, I've visited with Orlando a couple of times. His English is a lot better than it was when they were first moved in next door, which is good because my Spanish is <clears throat> horrible. I need Stanton to come by and talk with him. But anyway, but the point is, in your neighborhood, you want to try to be the best neighbor you can, right? Yeah. And so he says, you don't, you don't do things, you don't do things that are out of character with that harmony between neighbors. He says that's what love would do. So he says, love then does not work harm. Therefore, love, <coughs> love is a fulfillment of, and he doesn't say the law, he just says of law in general. Whether it's the law of Rome, whether it's the law of Moses, or whether it's the law of Christ. Whatever you might put under this heading of law, love is the fulfillment of that. Now when it says love works no evil, you go, what in the world does that have to do with paying my taxes? That's my business. But as Josh was alluding to, let's just say that I as a pastor decide, ah, this government is evil. I am not paying them taxes, and I'm going to withhold my taxes. I'm not going to pay them anymore. They're going to spank you. The, yeah. They're going to, yeah. And they might start coming after your fellow Christians that yeah, they, they know go, you associate with. Yeah, they go, huh, he's pastor of a church. Maybe he's got people in that church. In fact, he's got a, one of the people that goes to that church, he and his brother and sister run a store, and I bet that they're mishandling their money down there at that business. And so now all of a sudden, maybe Josh and Andrew and Ben are, perfectly above board. They, everything is on the level. But they've got to go through an audit. That sounds like fun, huh? To have to go through an audit because I'm looking out for myself rather than saying I can look out for other believers by doing the right thing. I love how you started that sentence with the word maybe. I know. <laughs> We've been through maybe a lot of audits maybe. and we come through with flying colors. What did I what did I put the meat? What did I attach the meat to? Maybe they're maybe they're board. Oh, yeah. Let's say they are above board. They are above board. They are above board. I'm sorry. I still can't even say it right, okay? I'm I'm sorry. I can't even say it right. And I say all that because I remember when I was in junior high and I went to junior high camp. This guy that was uh, that was teaching one of the classes one morning there at camp, and we're sitting there and we're going through our Bible, and he's talking about the necessity of being a good testimony to others. Well, the thing is, he's talking to us kids, but then he turns and he directs it to the adults that because you know there's all these adults that come there and they're counselors for kids. There's pastors from churches that have shown up with their kids, and some of them are sitting in these things, and he says, "And you adults." really have the opportunity to be a great testimony to the young people that are here by the way you conduct yourself. I didn't know. That's all I knew. just said this. But on the way home from camp at the end of the week, our pastor was telling us, he said he said that to every single group he had that week because there was a pastor that came up here that had come, that had come from southern Iowa and driven up there in his great big Buick with six or seven kids. Just back when you didn't have to worry about light, when you didn't, a Buick was a bus, man. You could pack as many kids as you could pack in there. You didn't have to worry about seatbelts. Anyway, 
and he said he had he had a fuzzbuster on the dash and one kid with binoculars out the back window and they did 75 to 80 this is in the 55 speed zone they made it they made it up there to camp in record time and this guy was really burned about this because he thought that was a horrible testimony to all those kids to say that the law is such a small insignificant thing that you can just tear down the road and if there's a way to avoid getting caught do it anyway and that made an impression on me. It made an impression on me for the fact that after I moved out here, I found out that I could always push it five miles or six miles over the speed limit. They're not going to pull me over. And Mark even kind of said that a couple weeks ago. But having said that. It is fine. Nine, you're mine. That's what he said. <laughs> but when our girls were getting close to the age that they were going to learn to drive, I thought, you know what? I need to be a good example to them. I need to say, you know, the law is the law for a reason, and I should obey that law. Because I'm setting a testimony for them. Because that, that was what happened. I'm driving down the road one day, and Katie's getting ready to take driver's ed or something in the back. And, and she's going, Dad, the speed is whatever it was. You're not doing that. <laughs> see, they learn stuff. All of that to say, see, you set a testimony for others by how you conduct yourself. And you can love other believers. You can obey law. So this, this is why Paul cites this command. He's not citing it saying, hey, we're under that instruction to love our neighbors ourselves. He's just using that as an example of the fact that under the Mosaic law, looking out for your neighbor should have caused you to fulfill that law. And so he says, in general, love, now ours is a different quality of love, but it's nonetheless, it's still love. Yeah, it's not going to work evil to its neighbor. So you ought to be thinking about how you conduct yourself. Any questions on this one before we move to the next one? I looked down so nobody can raise their hand. I don't see it. That's one quote. Do you have another one? The next one is in Galatians chapter 5. <coughs> now what's going on? What's the big picture thing issue going on in Galatians? Legalism. Christians, whether... By the flesh. Trying to mature before God through your own strength. Right. So can... can, can can Christians live under the law to mature by their own strength, as Josh says, or by the ministry of the Spirit? Which is it? This is what the issue is. And so he's got people that have come along that are teaching the believers what? They're teaching these believers to keep the law, circum get circumcised and keep the law. And so he says in verse 13, Galatians 5, verse 13. just want to make sure. Yeah, for 13 will be good. He says, for, he says, you have been called to freedom, my brothers, but use your, do not use your freedom as a cause, a reason for the flesh, but rather through love, slave to one another. He uses a verb form of the word slave. Slave or serve one another <clears throat> as slaves. That's what love ought to be doing. And then he says in verse 14, see, these people are trying to keep law. And so he's, and, th and this is what happens. When people tend to really become legalists, when people really focus on this, they focus on everything. And so they look at stuff and they're like, hmm, I'm suspicious of Josh doing this. And I'm suspicious of Leslie doing this and so on and so forth. They, they see all this stuff and they're always hyper-examining everybody else. And this is what happens to legalists is that they're always picking. They always want to make sure everybody else is in line. And so he says, for the whole law is summed up in one word, Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, he says, even if you thought about it, people, if you love one another, 
you would be acting differently. <laughs> but if you, this is what happens to legalists, and this is what Paul's concerned for. But if you bite and eat up one another, watch out so you are not destroyed by one another. In other words, the very people you should be loving and the very people that should be loving you, they're just snapping and biting each other. This is, he says, what the legalist does. When we set up a bunch of rules and things like this, we turn people into legalists and we turn on each other. And we're constantly hyper, uh, ins hyper inspectors. I don't know a good way to put that. You know what I'm talking about. We just look at it, the minutia of everybody's life and try to find all the flaws. And the, Paul's citing this here again because he's trying to help these believers that are trying to live, to live by law to say, see, it doesn't really work. But if, it, if, if you even thought about it, even at a law, if you would have loved one another, you wouldn't be acting like this. But you are living under law, and so what you're actually doing is biting and snapping at one another. And he's going to explain to him in a few verses why that's the case. Because when you live by the law, he says you're going to live by the flesh. And when you live by the flesh, well, you end up with the works of the flesh. And generally, you don't get to choose what works of the flesh you're going to do. You think you're going to. You start off with obeying those, and you're really good about it. And the next thing you know, you are really messing up in some place that you're going, how could I... Josh and I have a good friend that he actually said when he started, when he went down the point that he came to a kind of a halt, he said when he reached that halting point, he says, I just didn't jump to that immediately. That was a progression that went on slowly that brought him to that point because, well, he was doing, he just kind of kept stepping slowly and slowly and slowly downhill. So again, Paul is not citing this here to apply the law to to Christians, he's citing this here to help believers understand this problem of the law, but also even more so to help them see, look at your lives. It, this doesn't work. And Peggy and I were just talking about this again the other day. God never gave the law to make anybody righteous in the first place. He says as much here in Galatians as well as over in Romans. He says the whole law was given to prove that we're all sinners. Because Israel stands at Sinai and says, everything you say, we'll do. I didn't ask you to do anything. I just asked you to guard the covenant. Just guard it. That's all I asked you to do. What covenant? The covenant he made with Abraham. Oh, everything the Lord says, we'll do. And God's like, okay. So for the next 1,500 years, he used Israel to prove nobody can do everything God says. And as Paul says in Romans 3, what does that do? It shuts the mouth of the whole world before God. In fact, what ends up happening to Christians when we try to turn to law is we end up, well, as he says here in verse 15, we end up turning on one another. Any questions on any of this before we move on? Just trying to see where I am. Well, what I'm getting from the last two weeks is that Paul is a little snarky. <laughs> but Paul what? Paul is snarky. He's a little snarky. <clears throat> Paul's, well, because last week at the end of the lesson, when I was asking the question about passage in Ephesians where he says be angry but do not sin Tim pointed out that it was more like a dare. go ahead and try dare. and now he's saying yeah you can, you can fulfill the whole law if you just love your neighbor as yourself but instead what you guys are doing is snapping and biting at each <laughs> other yeah that tends to be the issue John. I would add a, a verse that's a quote indirectly, and I would put Hebrews 2, 3 as a 
referencing the new commandment also. Oh, that references the new commandment. But it's indirect quote. It's not oh. saying the How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first received a, a, a talk through the Lord by those that heard him was confirmed unto us, or was confirmed unto us by those who heard him. Yeah. So it was uh, reference James and John are the ones that confirmed Paul in Galatians 2, and they heard the Lord, and the Lord told James and John, and they confirmed it to Peter after Peter, or not Peter, but Paul learned in the wilderness. Right. So, yeah, upper room. Mm -hmm. there. Now, from here, let's stay in Galatians. So I flipped back over, I flipped over to Hebrews, but go to Galatians chapter 6 now. Galatians chapter 6, and we're going to go to verse 1. Galatians 6 and verse 1. It says, brothers, he says, if, if a man is overtaken in some trespass, trespass is an unrighteous activity, but it is not a sin. In fact, the, the very the nature of it, in fact, this was really interesting because I came across this, oh, two or three months ago uh, when I was been working on some of you guys know this i keep working on this word trespass and we don't have it it doesn't occur a ton in the new testament but it's definitely something that's unrighteous because you're dead by trespasses and sins according to ephesians 2 1. but uh, uh trench in his work, work book on synonyms one of the things that he cites about the nature of a trespass and cites it out of out of the way the greeks use it in greek culture was a trespass was something that was wrong but for which you made excuse there's something you thought was excusable. It's wrong, but it's we're okay with it, right? You know, I owe you that 500 bucks to list, but but we're good, right? <laughs> we're not. And I, I the reason I cite that's because that's exactly the way Jesus uses that word in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, one of those two in there, where he uses that expression. He says, "You forgive other people their debts," but in the context, it has to do. He says, and he connects debts with trespass in there because it's a person that's like they owe you something, but we're good, right? I don't really need to pay you back. See, and and uh, that's what that's the kind of the nature of trust. It's wrong to take a loan and not pay it back. That's wrong. But think of how many people excuse themselves. Oh, you just understood. Bankruptcy's okay, right? Because well, you understood. You get it. No, I don't. I've had friends that came and said, "Hey, we can do this." And I'm like, no. There's just, there's no, I don't think there's any valid excuse in Scripture. I can't justify it. Anyway, so this is what, this is the idea of a trespass. It's something that a person's trying to excuse. And if you want examples of trespass, you go in and you look at the three things he mentions at the end of chapter 5. I think all three of those things are examples of a trespass. Do not become uh, conceited or one with vain or empty glory. <laughs> You're so lucky to have me as a pastor and <laughs> provoking one another. And man, if only all the other pastors were as good as me and then envying one another. Wait a second, I wish I had it as good as that pastor. You see, I could put it in my setting, how I could operate. And, and, and that kind of stuff could go on. And all of us could put ourselves in some setting in which we would think those things. But none of us would look at those and go, well, that's all wrong. But Paul says it's a trespass. They're all tr examples of trespasses and probably trespasses that were common to this problem of people trying to live under law. So he says, if a man is overtaken a trespass, those of you who are spiritual, 
And contrary, much to my annoyance, modern commentators, they want to say that's true of everybody. If you're a Christian, you're spiritual because you got the spirit. But obviously he's drawn a distinction between those who are in a trespass and those who are spiritual. Because if we're all spiritual, well, then the spiritual guy should just figure it out himself and help himself. But that's not it. And I would say, how would you say, what would you say would be something that would define the spiritual person in this immediate context? It's really easy. It should be. They're not doing those things in 26, right? Well, well there's something either. They're just, it goes the word spirit. Spiritual in the context. They're being led by the Spirit, which he mentions back up in the context, and as a result, they have the fruit from the Spirit. Exactly. So he said, and not everybody has it. And they're laying down their life. They're putting their life on the line for this idiot that is making bad decisions. Right. They're trying to help him. So he says, those of you that are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, watching yourselves, lest you also become tempted. So you're going to go and you're going to... Now, it doesn't say doesn't say that the person is going to change. It doesn't say you stay there until you get the person to change. That would border... Well, that would border. That would become legalism. Because eventually you push that person to do the right things, and the person isn't really doing the right things. They're going through the motions of the right things. You're actually... And how do you adjust them? How do you adjust a person? What's about the only thing you really can do? What? Christ. Yeah. Remind them who they are in Christ. Someone say, who are you? Who are you in Christ? Tell me who you are. I've got people like that that I say, to them, who are you in Christ? Remember this. Or sometimes, remember you are. This is what they're doing. They can't make the person actually, they, the person could, keep in mind, a person can repeat that back to you. Oh, I died with Christ. I was buried. I'm seated. The they can repeat that verbally. That's not the same thing as the fact they've actually really set their mind to that. You can't make them do that, but you can be helping encourage them. You can get it out in front of them. So he says, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, watching yourselves carefully, lest you also be tempted. And then with that, verse 2, and then he says, bear one another's burdens. And in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. Now back up in the context, he says, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. So, but see, Christ's law is different. And I think that that's exactly the whole point. Christ's law is not a law you can break. You can't, you can break the Roman law. You can break the Mosaic law. How do you break a law to love? You'd say, well, you don't, you, you don't love, that's breaking. But you can't. The scriptures never say you break that law. You either fulfill it or you don't fulfill it. That's all you can do. And he says here, if you're bearing one of his burden, what's the burden? It's the burden they've strapped on themselves by thinking that it's okay to try to live by the law. Isn't this right? It makes sense. I mean, think of most of the Bible's the Old Testament. I've had, how many people have had that thrown out in your face? Well, most <laughs> of the Bible's the Old Testament. So that's got to be valid for my conduct and practice. Okay. And so he says, no, you're going to bear, you're going to carry somebody else's burden. I'd much rather sit at home and be lazy than have to go out and take time with somebody that needs help. Oh, not really, but well, my flesh would like to do that, but you all get the point? You take the time. You carry, you help carry their burden. How are you carrying their burden? By helping them see who they are in Christ. If they, if they see who they are in Christ, the things that are wrong, 
will become plain to them. But you could say, you really need to stop thinking like that. That's that's kind of a legalistic way to approach it. That's the way we normally approach it. You're doing a bad thing, you need to quit that bad thing. That's law, see? That's law. What you need to say is, you're in Christ. You're free from that. You're better than this. Yes, Christ has freed you. Yeah. But the importance of this is, as he's talking about this, the reason we come here is because he's talking about this law of Christ. And with this thing, keeping this in mind, I'm going to go to 1 John. Wait, just, just hold on. I think I'm jumping ahead of myself here. You, is it okay if I add a comment on that verse 6? Yes, you may, please. I think it's also helpful to understand here. You should put to get this together with uh, James 1, where it says, uh, Count it all joy if you fall into temptation. There you know that you're not carnal if you're in temptation you can count it joy still so you're not that's it means the beginning part of temptation is not compromise does not compromise you because you're being solicited with a bad thought from one of your spiritual enemies and you haven't done anything with it you haven't you, you know you haven't picked it up all you've done is made it it's you it appeals to you and it's your very own that's what makes it a temptation but you haven't said I'm gonna do it and so you're in the righteous side of temptation. Christ was tempted at all points, yet apart from sin, right? And he was never unrighteous. But in this verse, this is unrighteous. This person is overtaken in a trespass, but it's still temptation, lest you also be tempted. So there's an unrighteous side of temptation. And that and so what I how I theologically interpret this is. Trespass is the unrighteous side of temptation where you have decided to do it, but you haven't done it yet. So you haven't sinned yet, but you're unrighteous. And you're not spiritual anymore. That's how I And I also link it to James 1, 14, where it says, When the lust has having conceived, bears sin. So the conception... So that the trespass is the conceived bad desire. It's now a trespass, and you're just waiting to give birth, which is the sin. Yeah. So that just like in a childbirth, and that's the language it uses over in James, you got 10 months from conception to birth. And for us, usually, though, we choose to do it, and then we do it. <laughs> but there is, logically, a difference between deciding to do it now, I'll point out one other thing on if you back in 526 on this, when he's talking about vainglory or, or conceit or whatever it is and uh, provoking one another and envying one another, none of those things of themselves are sin. It's not sinful to have empty glory. It is not sin to provoke, and it's not sin to envy. But those things can produce sin. Stealing is a sin. Envy may be a, a precursor to actually doing an act of stealing, as Josh is talking about. So you're, you've, you've stepped into this realm over here. Vainglory, you know, the real thing is, is when, you are, when you're kind of full of yourself, it's real easy to open your mouth and say, hey, I am, and lie. <laughs> Make some claim for yourself that's not true. Oh, I went to this pastor's meeting, and boy, those guys were happy to have me there because I got them all straightened out and all. It's a, a lie, you know. 
they were going, oh, I can't wait for this guy to leave me. Anyway, that, so, yeah, it's, uh, but with this, if you go back to chapter 5 and verse 13. Wait, so that verse 2, 16, bear, when I was burdens, that bear is to take their load off. So take the load off of them about trying to live under the law, because that's a heavy load, right? And you're taking that burden by, by helping them see who they are in Christ. Yeah. That's right. And that, so the verse 6, 1. When you restore. You who are, so they go... So you're trying to help them see who so, they I are. So I mean, it's two different things. I restore him and then bear. Yeah. And then puts that together with verse five, where you, where the, he bears his own burden. Yeah. If you get if you get a person that just persists in what they're doing, there's a point at which they're going to have to bear the consequences of that. I mean, it's just. Do you spend your whole life just constantly working on someone to get them to change? Eventually, you're going to say you're going to have to bear that burden. And Paul says as much to Titus. He says, you know, when you got a guy that's stuck under the law, you got a heretic, how many times do you warn him? He says two times. And then you avoid the guy, Paul says. That's not very Christian today. I've, I've listened to pastors going, I don't like that. You know, you got to keep working on with the guy. Well, it's not like you kick him out of the church. He doesn't say that. He's just, he's, you avoid him. When he comes to you and he wants, hey, I got another verse for you. You just go, we've already talked about it. We're not going to do it again. So there's a, there's a place at which they're going to have to, as... Josh and Peggy were pointing out, you're eventually going to have, they're going to have to bear their own burden. If they persist, if they don't, if they reach a point they don't want to change, they're going to have to carry that, you know. And if they get reach a point in which they realize it's wrong, then you could step back in and help. But Now, with the bearing burden, if you were a well-to-do man in their culture, who would bear your burdens for you? If you were well-to-do, if you were a well-to-do man, who would carry your heavy loads? I go down to the grocery slave. store. Slave. Your slave. Back to chapter five, verse thirteen in Galatians. What did we see in there? It says, "You are called to freedom, my brothers. That's freedom from the law, but do not use your freedom as an excuse or a, a covering for the flesh, but through love, slave to one another." See, love is what's going to drive you to carry somebody else's burden and help them, to knock yourself out, to do that. When it would be much easier to just go, I don't want to mess, I don't want to, that's messy. Ugh. And we've all been there. You don't know what that's like to look at, it's messy. I don't want to have to deal with this. And sometimes you go and you try to help somebody with something messy and you walk away going, oh, it's still messy and it's no better. And those are three hours I'm never getting back. <laughs> Or you can walk away going, it's still messy and it's not better. But you know what? I watched God supernaturally work love through me, even though the person was unresponsive. And I watched God work love through me that is not my nature, because my love is selfish and my love would have walked away. But I stayed there and I just kind of kept doing this. And so you get, you even if that person doesn't get to see Christ, you get to see Christ. I was just going through a set of verses for something else I was working on today on places where Christ is seen out through you. And it was amazing how many times you have that idea of Christ is seen or Christ shines through you. And you know, a lot of times when Christ shines through us, we're the only ones that really get to see it. Other people may, but they may not. Okay. I'm not, we're almost done with what I want to cut with. I didn't get to everything I wanted to cover tonight, but I've got like three more verses I want to hit. If that's okay with all of you, Romans 12, 
Romans 12. This is under the same idea here of, of um, as we're talking about um, this command that goes beyond the law. And we're talking about. So in Romans chapter 12, in verse 9, and it's the very first statement in verse 9, and just to give my really great friend, and I really do mean that, I'm not saying that tongue in cheek, Josh, a hard time. I want him to read this out of his King James Bible, verse 9. Let love be without dissimulation. Okay, I knew it. I knew, <laughs> I knew they were going to have, have that word dissimulation in, in there. Yeah. Before that which is evil, cleave <laughs> to that which is good. Yeah. Be love, let love be without dissimulation. And if you can look up in a dictionary, you'll see what dissimulation is. But we don't use dissimulation. And although that's, a, that's weird because I was reading an article in the news like two weeks ago and they used the word dissimulation. I was like, holy cow, I don't remember the last time I read that in modern literature. I guess probably don't read the right stuff. But verse 9, what he says is, and Josh, Josh put it in modern terms, let your love be unhypocritical. In other words, if you tell a person you love them, you ought to, it ought to be demonstrated. If you have to try to convince them that you love them, you've got problems. But if you say, I love you, and they look at you like, really? <laughs> well, you got problems. But you should be able to say, I love you. And they're like, I know. I know. I see it. I see it by what you do. And so this is what he's, this is what, and, and I think, and this, this is the way I understand, those of you that have sat when, we've ta when I've taught through Romans 12 before, I think verse 9 is kind of a heading for a whole bunch of statements to follow that all the rest <clears throat> of these statements to follow show you what unhypocritical love will look like in a body of Christ setting, because this is all talking about the body of Christ and the way you react and interact with people. So anyway, so your love ought to be unhypocritical. And just as thing. Part of being unhypocritical love is when something is evil, paniras evil, meaning it causes pain. It could be emotional pain, mental pain, but it causes pain. It spreads. You stand back from that. You abhor it. You're like, I don't want anything to do with that. Because you know what? Because I love this person more than I ever wanted to let this thing get in the way. And the second thing, but you cling to the thing that's good, the thing that's going to make for well-being. This is the idea that Josh was talking about earlier. Like even towards the world, you can show goodness. You can do things that are give them a sense of well-being. You, we're called to do that in Galatians 6.10. But here with believers, you can do that too. So part of loving other believers is also doing what's good. And you've heard Josh talk about a guy that he had to deal with a number of years ago that says, I'm called upon to love my wife. All I got to do is just provide the basics for her. Well, this verse would say otherwise. This says if you're really agape love, you are going to do what makes for a sense of well-being for them. Okay, right? Any questions here? Okay, so we talked about in Galatians about the law of Christ is not burdensome. So I want to go to 1 John chapter 5. There's just so many, there are so many statements on the nature of love and the way we interact with one another. Um, I mean, we could spend the next months, years looking at this, but in 1 John 5, we're going to put in at verse 1, 1 John 5 and verse 1, it says, Everyone believing that Jesus is the Christ has been born out from God, and everyone loving the one having been begotten loves also the one being begotten from. In other words, and this is what he actually said, and to go back, I don't remember who made this comment earlier uh, tonight, 
So if you did it, just take mental credit for it. I'm not going to. But it says in verse 20, if anyone says I love God, this 420, 420, sorry, 420. If anyone says I love God and yet he hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one not loving his brother whom he has seen, how does he love God whom he has not seen? And by this, this is the command that we have from him. The one loving God is also to love his brother. How do you love God? By loving his kids. You go and tell God you love him, but you're not loving the kids. God the Father's up there looking at him going, really? I don't see it. I don't see it. Because I put all kinds of brothers and sisters in front of you, and you don't want to mess with them. You don't want to do anything. You don't want to help them out in the least. So you can tell me that all day. So this is what he's saying now in verse 1. We're kind of picking up in the middle of a content. We have a chapter division that's a little unfortunate. Verse 2. By this then we experientially know that we love the children of God when we love God and we keep his commandments. It's plural because that command to love is Christ's love is actually restated in a variety of ways throughout Scripture. And even Jesus himself said it becomes commandments. It says, for this, is the, for this is the love of God, in order that we should keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. See, the command to love is not, in the end, it's not burdensome, because where do you get the love from? You get it from the Spirit. If it's hard to love somebody else, guess what? Probably a pretty heavy chance you are carnal. Yeah, you're trying to do it by your own effort. You know you're supposed to love. You don't feel it, but you're going to do it anyway. and You're going to try. That's not saying that even being spiritual, that it's always easy to love. But if it's really, really hard, there's a chance you need to back up and you need to adjust the way you are thinking. His commandments are not burdensome. Flip over to Acts 15. Two more. We're almost done. Acts what? Acts 15. Now in Acts 15, the question that Paul and Barnabas are in, in Jerusalem to answer is, what do the Gentile disciples now have to do? They already accept that they're disciples. I don't, know, I don't know how anybody technically reads this chapter and thinks that this is about how the Gentiles are going to go from being an unsaved person to a saved person. It's just the chapter just doesn't bear that out. The whole question is, is now do they have to be circumcised and live under the law? And so Peter gets up. After he's listened to Paul and Barnabas lay down what they're teaching, it, Peter gets up and he says, Verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test, test you're expecting him to fail, which he's not going to, putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to, what's that word? Bear. It's the verb form of that word burden that Paul or that John just used over in 1 John 5. His commandments are burdensome. Paul's or Peter here is saying the law was burdensome. It was a heavy yoke. Our dads couldn't bear it. Our grandpas couldn't bear it. Our great-grandpas couldn't bear it. And we can't bear it. We crumble under the law. That's, a, that's <laughs> yeah. still remember uh, a friend that actually spoke at a church in the Midwest and talked about this thing. 
And in a meeting afterwards, one of the men in the, at the board said, How, he said that the law was a yoke. And one of the other guys, well, it's, that's what he says there. It doesn't make any difference. It's a horrible thing to say. Because he just wanted to think that the law is good. But Peter, Peter's the one that says it's a yoke. And God included in Scripture, and nobody corrects him. The law is burdensome. Therefore, when it says that, because I've read people over there in 1 John 5 that say, see, the Ten Commandments aren't burdensome. He says the commandments aren't burdensome. And they don't understand. He's talking about the law of love, not talking about the Ten Commandments and the, what is it, 600 and some other commands that make up the law. The law, the Mosaic law, the Sinaitic law, that is burdensome. But the law of love is not, because if you're loving properly, you're, you are following the lead of the Spirit, you're relating to your life in Christ Jesus, the Spirit's filling you down here, and that love is just, it's there. You just, all you got to do is direct it. Now you just get this opportunity, and, and, and you don't have to go out there going, well, I'm going to do it like this. No, you know, it's that person that God sets in front of you that you weren't expecting, and there they are. And it's like they're in this situation. And, I, and I'm just using an example that this actually happened today to me. It probably happens every day, but it was so, I was so aware of it today. I had to get in the car and go down to get the mail. And I was by myself. I was like, oh, this is weird. Dwight and I always do this. But he didn't. And anyway, I drive downtown. And I'm like, God, just Dwight usually is kind of the person that I direct attention to and, and share with and such like this. He's not here today. Maybe there's somebody else you want. Help me, tell me to notice somebody else. And I go down to the store and God brought somebody across my path that wanted to talk my ear off for about 10 minutes. It was really good. Letting that person talk, I shared a few things, but I let that person talk. It was like, huh, this is, that was really, and I didn't even think about it at the time. It's not like, oh, I'm fulfilling that law. It's just, you're just doing this. It was just, it was the opportunity God put in front of me. And it was actually after I got home, I was like, oh, that thing I asked you for God, that's what that was, wasn't it? Wow, that was really cool. But at the time, I wasn't thinking that. I'm just thinking, oh, yeah, just just enjoying it. And it wasn't, so it wasn't hard. It's not like I had to try to figure this out. When you're spiritually, you should need to take advantage and ask for something worthwhile, like winning the lottery. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be selfish and not love. Anyway. It just depends on how you're going to spend the money. <laughs> oh, I would, give, I would give most of it to God, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. So the last, so last verse tonight, First John chapter three, and we already sort of referenced this earlier in the evening, but First John chapter three, verse sixteen. When we get there, it says, "By this we know love, because that one laid down his life or his soul life." He does his he's talking about his soul. So, it, in other words, this is three sixteen. First John three sixteen. He says, so Jesus laid down the soul life. What, as, as a human being, is this what he aspired to? Did he aspire to get down on the floor and wash these disciples' filthy, stinky feet? It wasn't something he aspired. It wasn't his aspiration. Oh, I love washing feet. That's not what he's doing. So he lays aside what he does aspire to, lays that down. So we ought also to lay down our lives. In other words, you know what, you, whatever you aspire to, you ought to be willing to set that aside if God puts something else in your path. Christ, Christ, what? Christ set aside his deity. He, the free exercise of his deity, yes. Yeah, he did. I, 
I think this is also a reference to like Hebrews 12:1, he, the joy set before him. The, um, I think it's also that everything that up to that point, the promise was he'd be a king. He would suffer, and then he'd be crowned, and he'd have a reign. And he says, no, not yet. You would have expected when he rose on high to ask the Father to give the nations for his inheritance, and he'd crush them. Psalms 2. And he would start his reign, his forever reign that would never end, which will be glorious. And he says, no, I don't have what it's promised me yet. So he's setting that aside. But it doesn't mean he don't want that. He's setting it aside out of love. Mm-hmm. Want to make sure everybody makes it on the bus. There you go. So verse 17, he's going to show you how, how you lay your life down. For whoever has the things of this world pertaining to physical or biological life. And we've said that before. What, do you abs- what does a person absolutely have to have to maintain biological life? Paul kind of gets at this in 1 Timothy 6. Food and clothing. So food and clothing are things. So if you have the things, in other words, if you've got the food to feed, well, he goes on, he says, and you see, and remember that word see, is it's not a glance. It's it's something where you've been able to fix your attention and you clearly see. It's, and yeah, that's it. They really do have that need. It's not like, I perceive that need. And I know I've picked on Garnick's way too long on this illustration, but to me it just it sticks in my head because I remember several years ago the boys come in, they were quite a bit younger, and they come in and they get in the back and they're kind of, a couple of them are kind of grumpy. And I go, what's the matter with you guys? We didn't we didn't get to eat breakfast this morning. I was like, what, what's the matter? You didn't get to eat breakfast? No, we didn't get any food. I was thinking, oh, man, are they that hard up for cash? And then I talked parents later on they go no they were all goofing around so much that they didn't they didn't get out to the breakfast table and get eaten it was time to go to church (laughs) i remember that happening to me once i think too i can't imagine that i would have missed breakfast anyway but this is what he says you see the need clearly see i actually i actually asked to find out if there was something that was neat that if there was a need there find out no there wasn't a need there well there was a need of boys getting their act together so they could get breakfast in time. But anyway, but there was not a material need. He says, and he, so he sees his brother have a need, and he closes that up his, his, his uh, intense feelings of compassion for him. How does the love of God, how does the love of God at ease in him? Little children, let us love in, not love in word or in tongue, but in work and in truth. Which again, I remember speaking down at the park several years ago and someone come up, you mean, you really mean to tell me I can't tell my wife I love her? And I was like, no, that's not what I'm saying. But, I, but what John is saying is, if that's the way you, that the only way you love her, then that's not loving her. You love her by doing stuff, by work and by reality, not just going through the motions. You're, it's genuine love. Then, then if you say you love them, then they can go, yeah, okay, I know that. I see it. I get it. But the, the point is, is when he's talking about this idea, when we understand this idea of love, of what he's doing, that he lays down his life by washing their feet, by demonstrating that it's service in the same way here, this is service. And he primarily is pointing to loving by meeting a material need that they have. But I always point out, probably, you know, in our assembly, we don't have a lot of people that are starving or lacking clothing, but we may have people that need our time. And I've listened to this statistic that pastors say, 
they're going to need it at church. They've got lots of people that write checks because they would rather write a check than give their time because their time is more valuable to them than their than money. And, and I'm and he clearly is talking about meeting a material need here, but you're, you might find out that the need that God wants you to take time with is taking time with somebody, with people that need your time. Maybe it's the brother in Galatians 6, 1 that needs you to take the time to help them get their attitude adjusted, the way they're looking at things. That was one we went over tonight. Okay, I'm, I, again, I don't think I went through a verse tonight that we have not been over probably 10 times. <laughs> but a good reminder as we're moving into this new command, and we've got more things. In fact, i got to mark where we left off here because we've got, I've got, there's a lot more to look at here in terms of in terms of understanding this new command and some other things that are connected with it. Because the whole purpose of this is not to just verse by verse walk through the upper room, but to understand the teaching that goes along in the upper room. And since we have chiefly, really to put it in very simple terms, since we have chiefly one command, and that's to love one another like he loved us, doesn't it behoove us to really do our best to flesh that out from the Word of God? So, again, as a result of comments and questions tonight, I'm just kidding with that. That's really good. I appreciate those. Um, probably going to have a couple more weeks working on this at least, um, I would venture to say. When I went to when I went to seminary, one of our pastors for two years, two years on Wednesday night, and he he would teach a month and be off for a month, so it'd be about a year's worth of studies. Let's say it that way. And we got in in the middle of it. Was just teaching on love, just going through New Testament texts on love with regard to love between believers. And it was never, I didn't, oh, another lesson on love. Oh. Every time, I was just always like, that one's amazing too. That one's amazing too. You know, so. Okay. <clears throat>